Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, comrades, and once again, welcome to the Eastern Border. This episode concludes my weird trip series about Ukraine. However, before I can get to this one last part of the show, there is some more news from that region that I would like to talk about. So that you know that the things that I spoke about in the last episode and the events described there have not just gone away somehow. From the Adyevka City news site of the Donbass district, which, uh, for the most part, by the way, is controlled by Ukraine. So that you know that this whole stuff is still going on a lot. Quote, Center of the United Forces, which is how the Ukraine forces call themselves, consisting of the regular army, volunteers and militia, reports that on Tuesday, 20th of June, armed formations of the Russian Federation and the separatist forces broke the ceasefire in 18 different instances around Donbass region. Five times during the last 24 hours, uh, yeah, I'm recording this on the 21st, the enemy used 120mm and 82mm mortars, which are forbidden according to the Minsk Accords. At the same time, the Ukrainian forces were fired upon by grenade launchers of various types, Zenith artillery, rockets, large-caliber machine guns, and infantry weaponry. Then uh, they go into the details about which exactly front villages and which operative districts were shot at, there are 18 in total, and it's a quite a long list, which I'm not going to go relay here. However, the uh, ending paragraph of the news is, well, quite important. Quote, As a result of this, three Ukrainian soldiers were wounded, another one got a heavy concussion. In each case, the enemy received an adequate answer from armaments not prohibited by the Minsk Accords. Intelligence reports suggest that in the 20th of June, two of the invaders were destroyed and three more were wounded. At the same time, Donbass Press itself also reports this, except as a foul, evil breaking of the Minsk Accords by the Ukrainian side. As usual, violence continues. Nothing new on the Western Front, so to speak. But that is one another tragic death of a person whose work I had translated and often used at that. Dmitry Timchuk, a military journalist, colonel in reserve, who at the very onset of Russia's aggression against eastern Ukraine in 2014 founded the <clears throat> Information Resistance Group to expose Russian military tactics, 
an MP of the People's Front, he was a deputy too as well, and elected in the parliament, was found shot dead in Kiev. Ukrainian police have confirmed this fact, and um, Artyom Sevchenko, spokesperson for the Ministry of Interior, told on air on the Priami TV channel that Timchuk's wife had found him with a gunshot wound to his head. Right now, law enforcers are examining three versions, of which one is murder, one is suicide, and the third one is, uh, well, careless handling of weapons. The version about the careless handling was the first one that the pro-Putin press automatically posted everywhere, basically that this experienced journalist and a military person somehow, somehow accidentally shot himself while cleaning his gun. There could be many explanations, but uh, seriously, I highly doubt that it would be this one. An investigation and operational team is in place, obviously, right now, to find out the circumstances, and I uh, sincerely hope we shall find out something more, because Timchuk had served in various departments of the Ministry of Defense, and he had led this group, and um, in 2008, he became the editor-in-chief of the Internet Project Fleet 2017, and headed the NGO Center of Military Political Studies. After Russia's annexation of Crimea, and the start of the conflict in Donbass, he became the coordinator of the group Information Resistance, as I mentioned before, thanks to which he became one of the most influential opinion leaders on the internet in Ukraine. During Ukraine's snap parliamentary elections, he was elected an MP from the People's Front Political Party. And now he's dead. Just, uh, just another bet of food for thought, you know. Just so you remember that we're talking about real issues here, we're talking about real people who are dealing with uh, real troubles, and that nothing is as simple as it seems, and nothing is yet over, and nothing is yet clear. There are still people fighting there, there are still conflicts going on, and uh, this time I'm going to be talking about the other side of what's going on there. Because I went to Donbass, as I mentioned in the last episode. Kind of sad in a way that this is the last part of all the situation, but I'll, I'll get back there and I'll try to do some more work, because I, I have yet to see Luhansk and other places there. But just so you know, before I get into my nice descriptions of how the city of Donetsk works right now, just remember, nothing is really over just yet. Well, um, here, after all, to tell you about the other side of those front lines. Which is an experience all on its own, one that I would rather you uh, would not try to imitate in this case. First off, I need to start with the fact, how does one actually get into Donetsk, you might ask. Knowing that I entered there from Ukraine's side, and uh, by the way, for uh, nice little Afghan cops who might be listening to this, in a more or less legal way. Because for one, I can't go to Russia, much less through Russia, and uh, yeah, that's a bad way, and that will get me banned from Ukraine further on. And I didn't fight anyone there, nor did I do anything criminal. Uh, well, nothing criminal uh, that other people wouldn't do, and I didn't hurt anyone, so that's good. But first of all, you have to know that there are border points. Technically, there are four checkpoints with the border with Donetsk and one with Luhansk. The problem is, most of them are one-sided. This is due to how these separatist republics work. They only allow one of these checkpoints with Donetsk to be entered to from their side. That is, only one of these points is where you can leave Donetsk out uh, in the Ukrainian side. Because in their official media, they state that if they would open up some more, then, of course, evil Ukrainians would try to run into Donetsk insanely, even though, well, Ukraine has opened some of them from just their own side. They're kind of like those cockroach models. It's pretty easy to get in, but getting out on the Ukrainian side, 
Yeah, that's a tad more difficult. Because even the official site of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, DNR, of the Donetsk Nationalist Republic, only mentions the borders with Russia. Oh, and that then you can also get arrested as a spy. That, by the way, is what they, um, people from Ukrainian side, and literally everyone whom I spoke about with, warned me about constantly. Watch out, or you might get arrested. Watch out, because we can't guarantee your safety. Watch out, because, hey, you will probably get arrested unless you do some, well, things. Uh, yeah, it was very likely, because even though as I'm recording this, I checked again on their news, and of course, in the 19th of June, another person who had entered there had been arrested in Donetsk as a uh, spy for filthy Americans. And when I say filthy Americans, I'm not even joking here, because even the official information site about tourism, I guess it's kind of fan-made, maybe, but there's an information site from the Ukrainian side about how to get in there. And although that site presents a more or less idealized version of getting in there, uh, even this site, which says that, no, 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 four checkpoints, you can get there for free, and you just have to wait for 10 days. That's mostly bullshit, too. But even this idealized site states that, quote, if you are not Ukrainian resident, and if you don't speak Russian, it may be a bad idea for you to go to that area, as there are basically no laws there. And for pro-Russian militants who control Luhansk and Donetsk, America is the enemy number one. Because, uh, yeah, and I'll skip forward for a few seconds, because uh, I did saw on the local cafes, like, posters stating that they will not serve Americans there. Even though I don't even know why any Americans would want to go there, but yeah. Specifically, Trump and Obama were mentioned, too, because, you know, they're the root of all problems and evil that has befallen Donetsk, obviously, but I guess it's a matter of principle. The same site, like I said, the one that I used to get information, um, presents a neat, idealistic version about how to get to Donetsk and how to get permits and everything, but uh, on the ground, if you're not Ukrainian, then yeah, let's just say I wouldn't recommend anyone, and uh, I'm serious about this, anyone who isn't completely fluent in Russian, and born in the USSR, and probably a crazy journalist with a minor death wish to even try. For starters, the official permit site doesn't even have an English version. Obviously, for security reasons and to protect the privacy of some helpful people, I will not go into all the steps that I had to take on the Ukrainian side to get there, but um, but yeah, Donetsk side was even more interesting. If you are a Ukrainian resident and do speak Russian, or, you know, are you're someone like me, however, then technically, technically, you can get a bus there. Straight from Kiev, even, but I wouldn't recommend that, uh, as that would be ridiculously expensive. Because because there is no official bus line. There is no official train line. There is nothing official there. And if you go straight from Kiev, then that trip will take even more hours than my 18-hour ride to Mariupol. Basically, how does one get into this bus is that there are people who just hang around the central station in Kiev, train station, uh, totally unofficially, with a handmade poster stating that they run their own private minibus services to various locations, including Donetsk. But not limited there. These are non-official buses for cash only, and they obviously run to a whole bunch of various locations. But yeah, as soon as you leave the Kiev central station, people will offer you cabs and taxis, and there are little little stores who sell flowers and beer and cigarettes, and around those little things, there are just people sitting on their like folding chairs with little signs saying Luhansk, Donetsk, Kharkiv, just random cities because privately run sort of bus services. Which is funny, because that's the one way you could pick, but like I said, don't recommend it. There are other more fun ways. You see, the same way that I mentioned on the Kiev episode, the people on the train to Mariupol try to sell you cherries, strawberries, caviar, beer and ice cream. Yeah, they also sell somewhat shady bus tickets to Luhansk and Donetsk. 
And as the train often stops and stands for like 20 minutes in some stations during this 18-hour ride, where people just go out and have a cigarette and just, you know, buy all this stuff that's been given to them or, you know, just from people who enter, enter there, you know, you can see people standing out there and like in our central markets and some central markets around Eastern Europe, you would see some shady people trying to sell you like smuggled smuggled cigarettes or smuggled booze, you know, the classical in Russian spirtik vodka cigarette you know, spirits, vodka, cigarettes. At the same way, with the same voice, someone will tell me that, hey, 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 I, I have a bus to Donetsk. Bus to Donetsk. Bus to Donetsk, anyone? So, and, and such a bus, as I, you know, I, I listened a bit, such a bus costs 200 grivna, or approximately 6.5 euros, which is about 7 to 8 dollars. Um, yeah, and that one will take you from Mariupol or some train station just near Mariupol, but not quite, to these cities. Personally, uh, as I had risked already enough, I picked a bit less shady, yet quite more expensive bus. Thank you, Alexei. And that's, you know, all that I'm going to say about the, this nice part of that trip. He also had some neat connections inside the city, which uh, was nice because those connections were with people who made sure that I was not asked any specific interesting questions or arrested as a spy, as long as I didn't poke around, spoke English, or did anything idiotical like trying to draw attention. I did have to pose as a very pro-Putin journalist, though, but, well, that was part for the course, I suppose. Alexei was also the reason why I just wasn't asked my passport on the control post. Not entering, not leaving, because, for one, it's actually easier to pay an extra bribe to someone who has a car and who knows people and not get into a lot of formalities, which might be unnecessary and get delayed and uh, run into trouble, than it is to pay a smaller bribe and get into a lot of formalities. That's just how Eastern Border operates, comrades, and uh, if you really want details, PM me, and, uh, well, I probably will not answer. Donetsk yourself actually turned out to be quite a bit more surprising than I had imagined at the first glance. First thing that really left an impression is that if you wouldn't know about the whole situation there, if you wouldn't, like, see this with your own eyes about the surrounding areas and the other towns, because towns towards Donetsk, because, you know, Donbass is a large region, and there are, like, smaller towns besides Donetsk under control of the separatists, and those towns are, uh, well, basically ghost towns, shelled down and destroyed with, like, all the famous coal mines of Donbass uh, shutting down and flooded during the war, and those are empty and dirty, but if you enter Donetsk itself, then... Um, it's kind of hard to even remember that this used to be a crazy war zone if you didn't know about these events in 2014-2015. When in Donbass itself, war just was raging from dawn to dusk, then uh, you wouldn't even be able to think that it went through these hard, hard uh, clashes. The city, truly, is uh, very clean. It's cleaner than Kiev in many ways. I think it might be some sort of a Pachemkin's village area, because I didn't go anywhere without... Um, without my guide, but the city is truly, truly super, super clean and super polished up, and, um, well, people from the surrounding areas told me that Luhansk is much, much worse than that. But yeah, people in Donetsk right now, um, apparently there's a lot of public works going on, basically just to make sure that the city is super clean, as that's one of the ways how people um, make their money there. Of course, you know, when you walk through the parks, and, and if you look outside of the kind of, you know, the more central parts of it, you can see some more, like, downtrodden buildings or something. But for the most part, yeah, it was it was even stunning how clean and how nice it was. And uh, interestingly enough, that there's a lot of cars and a lot of people there, and uh, it's full with a lot of things, and, and like, magazines and, and, and markets are working. 
And technically there is business there, but you can see that they're forcing through their smiles out there. It's interesting that, well, people are kind and friendly, but it's weird. And the public transportation, which is, well, it looks super old, it's very Soviet-y, because Donetsk itself looks like a kind of a super polished up, very Soviet city. Yeah, it's all full. Interestingly enough that if you take the public transportation there, uh, the thing that you would notice, obviously, is that on the loudspeakers between the bus stops. Between the bus stops and everything, uh, you ride your public transportation and the reminder of the war is still there because you can hear just loudly stating that the war commissariat invites to serve in contract males from 18 to 55 years. And yeah, you can uh, you can see people in this public transportation, these kind of men, sometimes not even that young, and uh, in a camouflage form. And yeah, you can spot that in total that there are a lot of these, a lot of these separatists in the town. The city is full with men in camouflage forms, but like I said, the city is clean and looks kind of in a fake state of normalcy. I would say, it's is bizarre. It's clean, but eerily so. It uh, runs this idea that there is some uncanny valley going on there. Because, as I was told, this whole separatism thing is um, is probably the way how to actually, you know, get the biggest salary there. You know, on average, people in the civilian sector make about $77 per month, approximately up to $100 per month. Meanwhile, you can get at least double, maybe even triple that if you just volunteer to be one of these separatists who then blast people with, uh, with uh, mortars and get blasted in return. It's interesting because those who want to join them, they instantly get their good salary and then they can serve and then they can do stuff and, and then they can actually get their careers. And the streets are so clean because a lot of people from, like, the public sector, they get sent there. And the businesses, too, they, uh, obviously, they used to be run by other people, and uh, the local powers have taken over. They have basically stolen their businesses and they run them. But everyone's just grinning through their teeth and pretending that everything is super fine and super nice. Before going, there, I read a lot of posts that this would be a ghost town, but it is no longer that way. Of course, it's, it's kind of a bit more emptier than I, I presume it used to be, but still, a lot of people, a lot of cars, everything's super clean, but this whole warrior spirit is everywhere. There is militarism, because between these super nice buildings and super nice houses, and, like, you can't even see, like, you know, cigarette butts on, on the floor, on the ground, that is, and uh, truly seems that is kind of a Potomkin's village, except they're trying to fool themselves in a way. But about the cars, cars were an interesting thing, because I heard this little detail from my guide, and uh, it's an interesting thing, because everyone who has a car over there they basically have these number signs, about 8 out of 10 of them, maybe maybe more, they have uh, these DNR, you know, the Donetsk People's Republic registration numbers signs, and they are very likely and very kind of very similar to Russian ones. Three letters, three numbers, except that in the place of Ukrainian region, they have this DPR, which is the abbreviation of Donetsk National Republic. You would think that that would be some sort of patriotism of their own thing, but uh, no, that isn't. It doesn't show any patriotism there. Because it is mandatory to have these registration signs. But you can only drive with these registration signs only within DNR, LNR, and Russia. Under the treaties with Russia, Moscow actually, you know, acknowledges them. However, at that point, to actually go to Russia with these DNR and LNR signs, 
number signs. You have to have a, a kind of a technical passport of the car in Ukraine. Yes, Ukrainian technical and a Russian mandatory kind of insurance of the car. The DNR's insurance costs about 650 rubles for an automobile of an economical class. Meanwhile, the Russian one costs about 8,000 rubles, which, by the way, you can uh, just basically uh, form it instantly on the border with Russia in the Uspenka point next to Rostov Oblast. However, due to the fact that for the most people who live in the Republic, they don't have such means because that's uh, quite a lot of money. Yeah, these guys, basically, these DNR and LNR number signs are just trapped inside their own Republics and they can't really leave without their own cars. The Ukrainian numbers uh, have been saved by those who actually often visit territories which are like under Kiev control in the visit Ukraine. There, their DNR numbers, as in basically every other country on the planet Earth, DNR numbers just don't count there and it's illegal to drive around with them. However, everyone, completely everyone who owns a car in DNR needs to have their own DNR numbers. And uh, funny stories happen because these DNR numbers are so mandatory that you just have to have them, but you can just keep them in your trunk. And when the cops stop you if you have this Ukrainian number, then yeah, it's actually quite common, apparently, as I was told, to just basically pull out one of these numbers outside of your trunk and just present it and then, you know, vault happily on as if nothing had happened. So we have these clean cities and everything. But there are other, other things that really show how this normalization works. One of the more interesting things that I managed to look at there was a little something called Donmak. Hey guys, Annette here. Do you like what you're hearing? Let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, The Eastern Border, our website, theeasternborder.lv, or send us a tweet at eastern underscore border. As always, a big thanks to all of our Patreons. Your support is the reason we can afford to pay all the <clears throat> bribes and bring you this exclusive content. If you'd like to jump on board, head over to patreon.com slash border to find out how you too can become a Patreon of the show. All right, show Kristaps some love in the comments and let's get back to the show. See you online! This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. It's <laughs> 
See, Donwak is uh, sort of this big humanizer of all the situation. I mean, you go into this most insane of places where there's a literal museum called the Anti-Fascist Liberation Museum, where they have collected all the nice little crimes committed by uh, the Ukrainian authorities, including that they, with pride, showed me a kind of a this little bathtub where, allegedly, evil Ukrainian junta basically uh, drowned little kids in concrete. And it's the very same little bathtub there. I, I bet they have reconstructions too or something so in place of this like through their teeth forced happiness and everything even in this place i mean even though they're these separatists funded by russia want to build their own like separate little malarashi or something even they want to create this people republic there but yeah people people at the same time still want their cheeseburgers and fries they still want that, and uh, interestingly enough, that uh, McDonald's used to exist there. McDonald's exists everywhere, but after the beginning of the war, they were shot at everything. Previous owners of the McDonald's franchises there, they were pushed out by, uh, well, military forces, and like most businesses and small businesses, they were just basically pushed through and now are run by people who are very loyal to the local Donetsk authorities. But yeah, you couldn't really have McDonald's because they hate America so much. So they just decided that, hey, we're just gonna still buy all of our stuff from just Russia, from Russian McDonald's. They use everything the same way. They just name it Donmak, literally. It's bizarre because some things get better, some things get worse, but even their logo is basically similar, except it's like, well, Donmak. And they don't have Big Macs, they have Big Macs with a K. And then they have Grand Tasty, which is an analog of Big Tasty. And, and they just, you know, Russianized all the English names, and you can get all that stuff. In addition to that, in addition to all the, all the McDonald's produce, you can also just acquire some stuff from KFC there. Like, traditional stuff that would be in KFC, you can find it there, and you can get beer in Donmak. But it's basically made from the same materials, it's just imported from Russian sources of how they make McDonald's food. But it's kind of this island of normalcy, the fact that they want this their own separatist thing, but they can't really do that. On average, however, they obviously make way less money there, because if you convert it to Russian money, then a person working in this Donmak, he makes about 7,500 rubles per month, meanwhile, even in Russia, which isn't that great of a country there, the average one, depending on from the region, it's 20 to 35,000 rubles, so, you know, the difference between salaries is huge. However... Even that they saved everything up there and put it there due to how it operates, due to how it works, everything is about 20% more expensive than in McDonald's in Kiev or McDonald's apparently next in Russia. And the fun part is that people still go there. I made this episode, the Olympic Burger, right? About how people just want their burgers and fries and some sort of taste of liberty, if you would say, this taste of capitalism. And then you just go there and it exists, except that it's renamed, it's different, it's rebranded. And it's kind of looked at as a way how to do that, except over there, due to the very, very low levels of their salaries, going to Donmak is not something that you go just to eat, just to eat something and grab a snack. Going to Donmak is a whole whole event, I suppose. I saw people just going there and enjoying all of that situation. That Donmak has been like this one thing that what they want to do, and the, it's weird because there are a bunch of posters about how everyone hates America there, and you can see like military recruitment posters and well posters, huge billboards everywhere about how they love their current new glorious leader, and yet they still have this Donmak. 
and they even print it in Russia. All their like uh, packaging is printed apparently in Russia, in the same place where food packaging is printed for a bunch of Russian McDonald's. So it's just kind of bizarre statement that someone explains how everything feels there. They're trying to be normal, but they're not. Not quite. And at the same time, you know, you go to this Donmak in a place where in, in public transportation you get recruited to join people who will shoot at other people. Any kind of interesting, really. But yeah, Donmak and other such small stores is just one of the places where whole paradox of the system shows itself clearly. You know, when you walk through the city, even though everything's clean, you can see that some larger businesses, because again, asked people, and if you think about it, exactly these large businesses were the basis of the economy of Donmas. Yeah, they either are just not working, or they're working with some sort of stops in production. And the salaries are so low that um, it was reported that in some businesses, in some months, people don't even get paid in cash, they get paid in kind of a packs of products. You know, you work for a month at something and they can't pay you money, so they just give you a bag of various stuff that you can eat. Meanwhile, the streets are super clean. It's a paradox in itself. One other thing that matters a lot is that their TV and everything is just full with stuff, how life is great and how all the bad things that have happened to them is because of evil Americans and evil Western spies who come there and want to ruin their glorious city. But if you think about it, it's tragical because those big businesses really, they were the lifeblood of the whole situation, and that's why people are cleaning these streets. Because if you think about it, then building machinery, returning to coal mining and metallurgy, returning those large businesses to life isn't as easy as to make a donmak, how to return to life little stores or cafes. In some places in Donbas, however, you can still see the kind of the scars of the war. Well, for example, one of the outer districts, because, you know, Donetsk was uh, also a place of an airport. Yeah, that place is, you know, under strict limitations. Apparently, the, the airport was Donetsk is ruined, and you have to go through another checkpoint, and you just can't enter there as well. One thing that I did visit, however, was uh, the train station of Donetsk. It was a very special one because to the kind of the championship of Europe in soccer in 2012, they built new buildings there, as I was told, and, you know, they had, like, concrete stuff, and they basically put, like, new trains there and everything. But unlike the airport, kind of the train station itself didn't really suffer that much, and they, it was fixed kind of quickly, and now it's still a happy place, but it reminds me of Donetsk itself. But unlike the city itself, it was empty. Even though the train station is a place where everyone just rushes around everything, you, you can go there, it's open for passengers, you can like even buy tickets there, but it's empty. It's a huge building, it's everything, and in the big hall there's like no lights there, and there's a crazy echo everywhere, and uh, yeah, and the people who work there, like people who like serve there, yeah, you know, they explained to my guide that, yeah, you know, no trains or electrical trains go to Donetsk, because apparently... The whole, like, train circle is damaged. There is a train system running towards another station, or which is another kind of, you know, central station, Yesintovaya, which is controlled by the DNR. But the very rare electric trains who um, come from there, they don't even stop in the Donetsk itself, they stop in an outer district of it. However, you can just, you know, go to this massive, very pretty, very renovated building and buy tickets there, and there are people with, you know, Kalashnikov standing there and guarding it. Which is another another interesting thing, which is kind of explained about this. It's um, it's a ghost city that doesn't want to be one. It's an interesting place, and it's just a bit bizarre. And if you think about it, people over there are trying 
trying their best what they can do. The hardest part is, again, to find work which is not becoming, you know, underpaid or in this very bizarre defense thing where people just go because they want to eat. And a lot of people just want to get their Russian passports and leave now, but Russia, even though they're giving them out, maybe their politics will change, but it's not as easy as possible, really. And if there's kind of a vacancy for work, if you want to go and live your civilian life, then yeah, out of everyone who applies, obviously a first line and massive priority by government or order is those people who previously had served in the separatist forces. That is a super enforced rule there, I was told, and if you hadn't, you know, fought against Ukraine, then yeah, tough luck finding any job. Interestingly enough that this is kind of enforced by the way that you might lose your business if you don't, don't do that. Weirdly enough is that, how do these people survive there? Well, public transportation is cheap, gasoline is somewhat cheap, and everything's cheaper there, but didn't go there to throw my money around. I had to pay enough in various uh, bribes to my guides and whatever. But, well, people, you know, told me that uh, it's hard for them. Rents are still pretty high, as most apartments were just, you know, basically taken from their owners, and now the government is forcing you to rent them. And a lot of people just ignore their bills, because, yeah, whatever, what's, what's gonna happen if Ukraine comes back, then it's void anyways, and no one's gonna work for them, and they don't have any banks, and they have, like, these are, like, special stores there, and everything's kind of, like, fake, like, Donma. My phone, like, you know, I had to get their own local phone version there. It's just bizarre. They just sometimes just don't pay stuff, and no one knows how to get their, like, loans back, those who had taken them. It is kind of weird. Interestingly enough, that they also save up on other things. Well, again, told to me by rides, like, people buy the cheapest possible tea, and then they kind of mix it with a bit more expensive tea, and then they have something that interesting, really. And one thing that I noticed is that I eat everything myself, because, you know, I don't have any objections of, of any foods, and I've eaten, like, chicken's hearts, because they're, like, nice and Indian food, but I heard that in the market, apparently, that's a thing that you buy chicken's hearts, and then you kind of smack them up in, in the meat grinder, and then you make something which they call real cutlets, really. Because, well, that's what you can do, because everything else is sort of too expensive. Interestingly enough is that the humanitarian aid there, well, it used to come in and people who were retirees and, and everything, they basically got some packages from the humanitarian aid, which actually came from one oligarch, Harinat Ahmeta, which is Ukrainian one, but those have stopped because Russian humanitarian aid there basically gets, um, well, it's guns, just to say. But right now in the stores, uh, yeah, you can only buy the cheapest stuff there. Didn't really run into much of these products, but the weirdest part is that, uh, you know, if you go into a local store and food store in, in this beautiful city, which is super cleaned, and people, like, are happy with their billboards, and what you can see there is that what humanitarian aid they are getting, yeah, that, that should be given out to people for free, but as, as their businesses were basically taken over by the people loyal to their local regime, you can imagine that you can just see stuff with humanitarian aid packages in the stores, which is just, just excellent. Because you can't, like, buy them anywhere else, I suppose. They are just to be given out freely, but no one even, no one even thinks about it. No one even really thinks about it, and people just buy that because they have literally no other choice, because, hey, those stores are guarded by nice people who work with this separatist army, then they just, you know, will force you out if you do something wrong. But, yeah, about the pensions of retired people, one thing that I did saw with my own eyes as I made this episode about this Russian citizenship and everything... Yeah, that was the part where uh, I saw people who were, like, actively talking, even in this market, about how will they get their Russian citizenship for the 
Russian pension, they don't even want to refuse their Ukrainian one, these retired people, just because then they would be able to help their own families. So it is some sort of a utterly bizarre situation, and and people there, they some of them, like a lot of them at least, as far as I noticed, according to the billboards, at least openly and what they would like tell me and my guide, because I really tried not to draw too much attention, I had like not a lot of conversations there, but a lot of people there, at least openly, when surrounded by these Opolchensi, these guys who are like in these separatist army groups, they obviously state that Putin is the best and they want to become a single family with Russia, but it's said in the same way as they all go eat Donmak. They eat Donmak, they want to live normal lives, and a lot of these people are just in a state of confusion. They state that they don't even know what to do, they don't know what they want, they don't know what's going on and how everything is going to happen. They're insecure about their own tomorrows. City looks nice but everyone's poor. People are normal and want to live normal lives, yet there are always around those who just force upon them kind of this bizarro thing. Donetsk is a bizarre city. Scary one, and weird, because, you know, I couldn't get my way out of there, so I wanted to go to one of these shady buses, paid for the ticket. That didn't arrive, so I ended up sort of hitchhiking. Gladly, I still had some euros on me, so, uh, basically got out there with a nice little help of a truck driver and, a of nice little euro monies, and I hope that guy uses his euro monies well, because that got me back quite safely. But it was a very bizarre and strange experience. There are a lot of things that I can't really talk about, because I promised not to, and I couldn't take any pictures either, because that would be a bit too dangerous. But yeah, it's interesting that there, these separatists, it's kind of this military hoon that running the whole country, and everyone who can is in the separatist movement, and at the same time, upon this recording, you know, they get shot at, and, and they just keep doing this meaningless stuff, and at the same time, a lot of people in silence also sort of speak that they feel betrayed by Russia, because apparently Russia had promised them better lives, Russia had promised them better education, Russia had promised them better, well, everything. And that really didn't happen. Nothing of that happened, and there's a lot of a lot of bitterness in the air as well. But like I said, everyone just keeps smiling and waving and everything, but you can feel that people there, uh, they're tired from this war. But right now, well, some things never change, do they? People are still being oppressed by their own military forces. People are still running around doing their own things as much as they can. It is a slightly bizarre town, but I'm really glad that I visited. However, even people in Donetsk told me that I should probably not visit Luhansk. Apparently there is way worse. But yeah, if you think about it, then this whole war, this whole situation is a bit bizarre. Hope I've given you some sort of insight in the situation there in that country, and like I said, I do intend to return there. But, well, up until then, I still have a historical episode to make, and I need to kind of get down from all this trip. Please do support the show, and uh, I hope you enjoyed these episodes, and I hope you learned something from them. Up until next time. Dasvidenyi, tavarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.